Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm your host, Joe Wolfond, bringing you episode 199 of the pod. And joining me for this episode is my co-host and proud new uncle to a nephew who shares his name, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What is going on? Definitely proud new uncle. Uh, does share my first name. Has a, He has my brother-in-law's last name, so it's Leggio instead of Cacharo. But uh, yes, Joseph Francesco Leggio. He's got his two grandfather's names, which also happens to be one of my names. So yeah, a very, very happy addition to the Cash family. And uh you know, in, in addition to the addition to your family that, you know, came a, a few months ago. So good, uh, good times all around here in the Pound the Rock family. We are closing in on 200 episodes, just good vibes all around here. Yeah, the, the Pound the Rock family keeps on growing. And I think if there was one thing we definitely needed in the Pound the Rock family, it was more Joes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, exactly. Happy to welcome Joseph Francesco into the world. Uh, happy for you and your fam. And Excited to, to get into today's show. We've got a fun one on tap. Um, this is an exercise that, that we've done each of the last two years, and so we're doing it for a third time this year. It's players who we feel can swing the 2021-22 season. And we've done this as a written piece each of the last two years. We've got a written piece coming out next week. But I think we both felt like it would be fun to do it in podcast form as well. And I... You know, sort of just to, I guess, lay out the parameters and how we think about this and how we go about picking these players. I mean, Cash and I sort of put our heads together and come up with a list, you know, for anywhere from like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten players that we feel like, you know, have a, a wide enough range of outcomes that, like, based on where they finish within that range of outcomes, you know, whether it's on the lower end or the higher end, can actually like meaningfully impact the NBA landscape and and potentially the title picture. And so, you know, the, the way to think about this is not who are like the best players in the league. Like, obviously we know like your LeBrons, your Embiid's, your Jokic's, your Steph's, your KD's, like those, those kind of players, we sort of know what to expect. And obviously wow. we know. Giannis, Giannis still getting disrespected even after winning a title. I'm going to take that as you just listed your top five players in the league and you didn't include Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yeah, please. Me, the, the guy who has like defended Giannis from every ridiculous criticism that you've lobbed his way over the years. I'm the one who's disrespecting we, Giannis. We got to switch it up this year. You are um, now uh, a Bucks <laughs> hater and I am the biggest believer. We got to mix things up. You know, we, yeah. we got we to gotta switch roles every now and then to keep everybody on their toes. But basically, I think it's not that like those players aren't going to like be better or worse from one year to the next they are the ones at the end of the day who are ha- g- gonna have like the biggest impact on the title picture but and yes obviously Giannis is in that category as well I think we conceive of it more as players who we don't necessarily know what to expect and who if they hit their higher end outcome can really really change how things look for their teams and for the league so so last year we had Paul George um, who, you know, maybe does fit into the the category of like being one of the upper echelon stars in the league. But if you remember the postseason that he was coming off of last year, how much uncertainty was looming over that Clippers team after they completely imploded in the bubble against the Nuggets and, and how much of a part Paul George played in that implosion. I do think there was a lot of uncertainty about 
what it was going to look like, the kind of season that he was going to have. He had, I said, I think more to prove than any player in the league. And he absolutely went out and proved it. And the season that he had played a big part in the Clippers getting as far as they've gotten literally in franchise history. Yeah, he took that Tin Man costume off. Uh, <laughs> and I was going to say he burned it, but he didn't burn it. He actually sent it FedEx to Ben Simmons' house. And uh, Ben Simmons now proudly wears that Tin Man costume. Fantastic stuff. Um, we also had Kevin Durant, who, again, yeah, I just listed KD as one of the players who wouldn't normally belong in this category because we know what to expect from him. But that wasn't the case last year. He was coming off of an Achilles tear. And we very much did not know what that was going to look like. KD was still KD. And because of that, the Nets came within, you know, a shoe size of knocking off the eventual champs. Um, We also had DeAndre Ayton, who I think we can all agree, turned out to be one of the swing players of the season, played a huge part in getting the Suns to the finals. Draymond Green, you know, his season didn't wind up making a huge impact on the title picture, but his playmaking and defensive acumen certainly played a huge part in keeping the Warriors in the playoff picture and making them, you know, one of the, one of the league's more interesting teams throughout the season. Michael Porter Jr. had a big breakout, helped keep the Nuggets afloat when Jamal Murray went down. Uh, We will probably be talking about him at some point in this episode as well. OG Ananobi didn't really come to fruition in the way that we might've expected he had a very good season. The Raptors very much did not. Uh, so the the swing factor didn't really come into play. And then the last one we had was Tyler Hero, who, you know, based on his preseason so far, seems like maybe we were just a year early on that yeah, one. Yeah, he looks real good. And if um, you remember after the playoffs, the 2020 playoffs, I think you and I both spoke about how we thought he had, like, all-star potential within, like, a couple of years. Like, we, we were... Maybe not the biggest hero believers, but like we were both believers. And then, yeah, last year, you know, just didn't go the way we thought it would. But he looks really was, good right now. It was pretty hard not to be a believer after seeing what he did as a rookie in the latter stages of the playoffs in the bubble. And Hero's like a really good example of of what we're talking about when we say swing players, because it can go in either direction. And that's kind of the point. And him having a really disappointing sophomore season was a big part of the reason that the Heat had a disappointing season as a team. And, you know, another way to look at it was, and a big part of the reason we put him on that list was that he was a name after that huge playoff run that he had as a rookie, he was being bandied about as a potential headliner for like James Harden trade packages. And whether or not you believe there was any real smoke there at any point in time, there was buzz about that. Like the people were legitimately talking about him as somebody who could headline a trade package for a superstar. And the fact that he had such a disappointing season, not only did it help kind of tank Miami's season, but it took him off the table as the kind of player who could headline that trade package. Yeah, And so you can be a swing player in either direction. Yeah, we, we started the show with all those good vibes. Let's, let's tear some people down now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not looking to do that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I I'm kidding. I think, I think we all have faith. We both have faith in these uh, these swing guys, even though we're acknowledging that it could go either way. 100%. So this year we came up with eight names and uh, I'm going to let you start cash pick the one that you are kind of the most interested Ooh, in most the, interested. the biggest swing player in your mind for the coming season. All right. So out of the four I took, let's see the one I'm most interested in. You know what? Let's go DeAndre Hunter. Um, Love it. 
as you know, and if you remember early last season, like I wrote that big piece on the Hawks surprising defense and kind of what it could mean not only last season, but for them going forward and the core and and building around Trey Young. And for as much as I think Clint Capella gets the majority of that credit, which look, he deserves the guy, in my opinion, I think we talked about it late last season. I thought he, he should have been a legit defensive player of the year candidate uh, last season. But the guy that I think is very much, very much the glue to that Hawks team. You know, he's not he's not their best player, clearly. He's not even their top two scoring. Because when Bogdan Bogdanovich is healthy and, and, you know, John Collins now getting that new big deal. Like, DeAndre Hunter's not a top two or three option. He's not. But he, to me, is very much the glue of that team. The kind of the straw that stirs the drink. Uh, and if you remember last year, he was having a great sophomore year. Then he had the meniscus tear. Uh, in the play- no, sorry. First, he had the knee injury earlier in the season and missed like three months. Then he came back. Then he had the minor meniscus tear in the playoffs that kept him out the rest of the playoffs. So, to me, the, the swing factor here is that while he is young, he's also coming off a season in which he had two knee injuries, one of which required surgery. Uh, and so, I, I don't know if there's a guarantee that he's going to get back to peak form at least early in the season. Uh, and to me, just the type of player. DeAndre Hunter becomes is going to help determine just how high the Hawks ceiling is like in in the shadow of Trey's star turn like I was mentioning you know John Collins two-way improvement and the subsequent big contract he got Capella's defensive player of the year case Nate McMillan's turn the turnaround under Nate McMillan last year I really do think that DeAndre Hunter to me was one of the most improved players in the league last season and if he's going to develop along that trajectory that he was on last season I think the Hawks very much have a legitimate contending core going forward and potentially as early as this year. And, you know, I know you can say, well, last year they made the East finals, like clearly they are, but I think this year they're a more legitimate contender than even the one last year that surprised us and made the East finals. I just think, uh, you know, I mentioned him being the glue. I think he's a lot more than the three and D guy that at least I thought he was going to be going into last season. Maybe other people already thought he was more than that, but I, he definitely showed me that he's more than that, or at least capable of being more than that last year. I think he's most important on the defensive end, of course. And I think it's especially true because he plays on a team with Trey Young. And going into last year, it, there were legitimate questions to be asked about whether you could construct a competent defense and a defense that can get you to the playoffs and contend in the playoffs with Trey Young on the court, which obviously was a big question to answer for a franchise being built around Trey Young. And Again, while Capella's presence and Collins' improvement were big reasons why they answered the question in the positive last year, I think DeAndre Hunter's perimeter defense and and ability to guard wings and to help Trey Young. And even when I was doing that piece last year, and I remember asking at the time it was Lloyd Pierce, but he mentioned that. He mentioned how important DeAndre is for Trey Young and also how important DeAndre's presence is for Collins' improvement and for Capella as well because... There's a big difference between Trey and another average to below average defender in front of those guys and DeAndre Hunter helping Trey and whoever else is on the court with them. And even, you know, I think I mentioned last year, like anytime it was Trey, whether it was Trey with Herder or Reddish, you know, the, the defense definitely slipped. And when you put Hunter in those lineups, it really improved. Uh, I think Bogdanovich is a better defender than Herder and, and Reddish. Uh, but, you know, I don't think he's the greatest defender. So just Hunter's presence there as like the guy, the one guy among the rotation of perimeter players, although I guess now DeLon Wright's in there as well. But Hunter to me is like the one guy that's like just invaluable 
to their perimeter defense and helping Collins and Capella take care of stuff at the back. So I think he is invaluable to their defense. And then even if you just look at the player he was seeming to become on the offensive end, I think he showed a lot more off the dribble pop than I expected from him. His three-point percentage dipped last year, but he shot the ball well from everywhere but three, and he was a pretty good shooter as a rookie. So if you look at even last year as a sophomore, like he still ended up averaging 15 points on 60% true shooting, even without the, the three-point shot falling. You know, the Hawks are going to start this year with Bogdan healthy as opposed to last year when he and a bunch of other guys were out. They went 37-19 and 19 under Nate McMillan, if you include the playoffs. They've got the superstar at the top of the roster who's, you know, now a proven playoff performer. I think they've got some, like, two-way balance and depth. I think they have a lot of ingredients there. And I think DeAndre Hunter, continuing on the trajectory he was on last season, staying healthy and and very much being that glue guy on both ends of the court, I think is a very, very important piece for Atlanta reaching their ceiling this year, which I truly believe is like a team that could, would I pick them in a series against, you know, Brooklyn or Milwaukee? Clearly not. But do I think they can get in that mix with Miami if things go right? Do I think they can trouble one of those teams in the playoffs? Absolutely. Like I think this team really has the ability to become a fringe contender this season. And I think Hunter's presence, um, and again, continued development along that trajectory is, is really key there. Yeah, I think, you know, I agree with pretty much everything you said. I, it's interesting because the Hawks initially cratered when he went out. Yeah. And then in the second half of the season, they kind of took off without him. And then, as you mentioned, like he came back at the very, very end of the year, played three regular season games, then played in the first round in a clearly compromised state, and then wound up having another knee surgery and missing the rest of the playoffs. And when that happened... Cam Reddish kind of wound up slotting in for him and having a bit of a breakout of his own. But early in the year when Hunter was healthy, like that was when the Hawks were flashing that potential that I think would ultimately bear out in the playoffs. And their defense was looking vastly improved. And after Capella, I think he was the biggest part of that. And so, you know, he wound up only playing 23 games, but the Hawks allowed 7.1 fewer points per hundred possessions with him on the floor. And, you know, I think you mentioned like he he is that sort of connective piece, right? Because they have these established guards and now they have an established front court, I think, with Collins and Capella, who both signed new deals and are going to be there for the long term. Hunter is that kind of swing piece. Like he is the guy in the middle of that, like the two-way wing who can connect all the dots. And what he is going to be for them is the guy who is tasked with guarding the big ball handling wings of the world. And in the Eastern conference, that's, you know, it's Durant, it's Jason Tatum, it's Jimmy Butler, it's OG Ananobi. Thought, I thought I'd just sneak that one in there. Um, yep. But like, you, like you could even see him being the point of attack primary on Giannis in, in a matchup against the Bucks, right? Like, yep. Or, or he could be the primary on Middleton. Like that is sort of the range, uh, you know, the type he, of player he, that he's going to be. He logged legit time at like the two, the three and the four last year. Right. And so, you know, he's going to be their go-to one-on-one perimeter stopper. And obviously that's an important enough role, but I think, you know, to your point about him being more than just your stereotypical three and D guy who's spotting up in the corner, he shot it really well for mid-range last year, really well from floater range, finished effectively at the rim. And like you said, he can put the ball on the floor. He can shoot off the bounce. He can, he can chisel his way into the lane and hit those short mid-rangers and push shots. So, He's got some offensive juice to his game as well. And 
You know, he, to me, is still very much the guy, way more so than Reddish, who can be that reliable two-way wing that puts this team in the title conversation. And that's obviously contingent on him staying healthy and probably making another mini leap. You know, he made huge strides in, in year two. Like, I agree with you. I think, you know, if he'd stayed healthy, he would have been in that most improved player conversation. If he can make another jump and basically like pick up where he left off before he got injured for the first time last season, this Hawks team could be really, really scary. Yeah. Who's your first guy? So this this is, uh, you know, maybe more along the lines of like the Durant pick from last year, but it's got to be Clay Thompson, right? We've talked a lot about the Warriors and what we feel like they may or may not be capable of this season. And we've talked about how much of their, you know, the height of their ceiling being so contingent on what Clay looks like when he comes back. How well can he approximate the player that he was before? How available is he going to be? You know, how many minutes a game can he log? Um, For one thing, we don't quite know when he's coming back. But either way, like by the time he comes back, he will have gone at least two and a half years between NBA games. Yeah. Two and a half years, man. And so like to, to kind of put that in perspective, like he was 29 when he tore his ACL in game six of the finals against the Raptors. And when he takes the court again, he's going to be like a few weeks away from his 32nd birthday. And like, those are prime NBA years that he has missed on top of the fact that he's recovering from these two devastating lower body injuries, you know, the torn ACL and then the torn Achilles. So anyone who says they know what to expect from clay when he gets back outside of maybe like the Warriors medical staff or their biometric data department, anyone else who even purports to have a good idea what to expect from him when he gets back is lying to you and to themselves. I I just think it is such a huge question mark and one that could really come to define this NBA season because look, we talked last episode about how effective it was just when like, Jordan Poole was on the floor next to Steph Curry, right? Like having another movement shooter with gravity who could play alongside Steph, they they outscored opponents by like 18 points per hundred possessions when those two guys shared the floor. Like if Clay is anything close to the guy that he was when he got injured, this team could have legitimate title aspirations, right? But it's just, you know, this is like Clay before the injuries started piling up for him was a paragon of consistency. Like people took to calling him the metronome because of how consistent he was. And this is just going to be new territory for him and the Warriors. Like in terms of his availability, his ability to play big minutes, his level of play from night to night, that that consistency probably isn't going to be there. And so look, the goal has to just be getting him to the playoffs as close to 100% as possible. And so the regular season for him needs to be entirely geared toward that goal and that's getting him physically right obviously but it's also just getting him comfortable and confident and that might mean letting him play through and shoot through some big time struggles and it might mean sacrificing wins for the Warriors you know sacrificing seating position it might mean them like tumbling out of the top six and and falling into play-in territory but if they get to the postseason and Clay is both healthy and in rhythm 
I'm kind of not going to be too worried about their seeding because I think they're going to be a serious threat if that's the case. So I just think like he has massive swing potential on the season and I have no idea what he's going to look like, but I could see it going in any number of different ways. Yeah. If we go by the actual like definition of this exercise, Clay has the biggest swing potential in the league this year. Similar, like you said, it's very much, you know, obviously he's not KD, but it's very much the KD factor going into last year. Like if, if Clay is anything near the hall of fame shooter and you know, the guy who's just absolutely confounding opposing defenses with his off ball movement and also stepping up and guarding, you know, the elite perimeter players on the other team, like on the defensive end, if he's still checking all those boxes, even if it's not to the exact same degree he used to do it, but if it's anywhere close and you look at what Steph, you know, who Steph still was last year, if you look at um, who Draymond was last year and the fact that, you know, offensively, at least while the playmaking will still be there, like offensively less will be needed out of Draymond, right? If you look at God knows we are not the biggest fans of his and his anti-science rhetoric right now. But if you look at the just kind of role Andrew Wiggins finally found this year as just kind of like, honestly, like a solid across the board, like third option or something. Like if, if you just look at all the things the Warriors have found around Clay coming back, um, you look at the upside of someone like Jordan Poole, who you picked as one of your breakout candidates, you know, whatever you think of James Wiseman, like they're is a lot there that if clay comes back clay or anything close to it yeah they're to me it's like they're a no-brainer contender they have a chance to win a championship again this year and if he can't be that guy or if he just can't even stay on the court maybe because of as you mentioned like these are it's not only just two and a half years off and going from 29 to 32 it's two and a half years off with two of the most devastating injuries you can suffer as an athlete but particularly for a basketball player and so if he's just not anywhere near the player he was, we're talking about a team we just said could absolutely win the championship, scrapping and clawing probably just to get into the play-in again, you know, or to win a play-in game, which they couldn't do last year. So if we're looking at the actual definition of a swing player, nobody fits the bill going into this season as much as Klay Thompson does. Yeah, and if you want if you want to read something that might give you like a, a sense of optimism about what he can be when he comes back... I don't know if you or any of our listeners uh, subscribe to Mike Prada's newsletter. I think it's called Prada's Pictures. But Mike like writes really well about NBA X's and O's and like all facets of the game. But he also writes, I think, really interestingly about biomechanics. And he wrote this piece before last season started about Durant, which was called No Dip. It was a very optimistic look at what Durant was going to be able to do coming off of that Achilles injury. And the biggest reason that that Mike was like so optimistic about KD was that shooters have like a dip right before, before they go up for their jumper, which is essentially like they catch the ball, how low are they bringing it? How deep is like the knee bend before they're rising and firing? And KD's he noticed was like very small. Like he, because of whether it's just his size, his length, like his upper body strength, didn't need to do this big dip in order to like get his shot up, you know, get it to the rim from like 30 plus feet out. He didn't require that. And I think if you look at Clay's shooting motion, he has a really high release point. He doesn't bring the ball down, you know, hardly at all before he lets it fly. Like that's a big part of the reason that he has that ridiculously quick release that's made him such an effective shooter. And I think you can maybe it's different because so many of his shots are coming off of the catch, whereas KD's were coming off of the dribble. But like you can you can put him in that same category of a player who 
does not have a big dip on his jumper, isn't as reliant on the lower body with his shooting motion. Like it's, it's a lot more upper body oriented. And that's maybe a reason to be optimistic that his jump shot, which is the, the foundation around which his offensive game is built is going to survive these injuries. Okay. That's, that's actually really good stuff to the people tune into pound the rock for. Yeah, no, honestly, I would, I would uh, highly recommend any of our listeners like subscribe to Mike's newsletter. Cause it's awesome for insights like that, which is not something that you would like typically think about. I love um, that kind of outside the box thinking. Um, so yeah, hit me with, uh, with your second Let, swing player. Let's go Jaron Jackson. Um, who, yeah. who was actually, uh, I know this isn't breakout candidates, but, uh, he was voted by the GMs as the player most likely, or I guess the way I should phrase it is he was the player who received the most votes in the general manager's poll as the player that will break out this season. Um, and I think that there is a swing factor there in terms of like the Grizzlies possibilities this year. So Jaron Jackson, in case people forgot, tore his meniscus in the bubble. The 2020 bubble uh, didn't come back until April of last season. And when he did, he wasn't quite the same player. Like his shooting was way down. Uh, I think he started to pick it up towards the end, but you, you could tell he just wasn't back to normal yet. But if you remember the player he was starting to become before he suffered that meniscus injury, this is a guy that averaged like 17 plus points per game on good efficiency in less than 30 minutes per game as a sophomore. And I think there's a path there, not just to get back to big numbers, but to actually have a big impact now in year four. So if, even if you're just looking at it from like a numbers perspective, you know, Valanciunas is gone and Steven Adams, who's actually looked pretty good in a couple of preseason games, but like Steven Adams is there to D up, to rebound and to screen. And so I think at least in the time Jaron Jackson has been a pro and has been in Memphis, this is the season that they're going to be most reliant on him for the bulk of their front court scoring. And I think he's going to have to step up there. And if he can do that, and he can get back to the player that we know he's capable of being on defense. If he starts looking like the player the Grizzlies, you know, drafted him to be and probably envisioned he would be by year four, injury notwithstanding, I really do think that the Grizzlies, although I think we've both spoken about them maybe taking a step back this year, and even if you just look at the moves they made, maybe not continuing on the trajectory they've been on the last couple of years, I think if Jaron Jackson starts to approach the ceiling he's got this year, if you just kind of look at who John Morant has been the last couple of years, and I'm a huge believer in just his ability, not even just to prove us wrong, but his ability to, you know, in a lot of ways, turn water into wine with the supporting cast. Because I think he has really maximized not just his own talent so far, but also um, the supporting cast around him. I think Taylor Jenkins is one of the more underrated coaches in the league. And I think between Ja and some of the supporting talent still there if jaron jackson can hit the kind of player he could be this year i think the grizzlies all of a sudden go from a team that's like all right they're taking a step back this year let's take them out of the the playoff picture even the playing picture and all of a sudden they're a team that could start showing flashes of you know fringe contention not this year but in the next couple of years and i really do think if jaron like there there's a ceiling there this year that he can hit that all of a sudden, you're looking at having like what he could be with John Morant and some decent supporters around them, a good coach. This, this is a team that very much can be for the third straight year, like one of the surprises of the NBA. Uh, but I think Jaron Jackson is the key to that because I'm at the point where like I'm pretty confident in who Ja will be, you know? And, you know, even a guy like Dylan Brooks, uh, he's, he's a bit of a, 
he's a bit of an all or nothing player and, you know, definitely a gunner. But again, I, I very much know, I think maybe not on a night to night basis, but like on a season long basis, I'm pretty confident who Dylan Brooks is going to be. I'm pretty confident in like the identity of this Grizzlies team. Steven Adams, though, he's lost a step. Pretty confident. Like I know what they'll get from this. The one guy to me who has that swing factor, and it's a pretty big one because this guy to me could be like an all-star within a year or two and also could just be like a bit player for the next three. I think it's Jaron Jackson. And I think we'll start to see that this year. Yeah. And I think, you know, most crucially the Grizzlies need more shooting. Yeah. And before he got injured in the bubble, Jaron Jackson was having like a breakout. I think he was, he was getting up like 10 threes a game and shooting like 40% on those threes. It was pretty incredible to watch a six foot 11 guy doing that and doing it in the way that he was doing, right? You know, you think of like a, a big man, like his size who can shoot threes and you tend to imagine them spotting up or like getting threes out of the pick and pop. Jaron Jackson is like a crazy movement shooter. He's running around off ball, like a six foot 11 clay Thompson basically and catching and firing getting his feet set and getting his body like turned toward the basket in less time than it should take a man, his size to be able to do that. You know, it's that is his sort of unicorn skill to me. And when he came back last year, like we didn't really see that he did not shoot the ball well when he came back. So if he can get back to the level that he was shooting at a couple of seasons ago before he got hurt, I do think that is, a huge swing piece, like just that one skill on its own for a Grizzlies team that really needs somebody to open up the floor for them. And another thing that's interesting about that, and this is another thing that I wrote about, is like, how much are we going to see Jaron play the five this year? Because I think if you want to optimize Memphis's offense, it probably involves Jaron playing the five. Yeah. But the issue and the reason that we haven't seen a ton of that in the past is that they haven't been able to rebound the ball and they haven't really been able to defend when he's played center. He, he's not a great rebounder, if we're going to be honest. He's a poor rebounder. Yeah. He's a very poor rebounder. Yeah. And he honestly hasn't been that good of a rim protector either. And like, there's this idealized version of the Grizzlies where Jaron Jackson is playing the five and they can switch a ton because he does move his feet quite well. They could get to this point where like he is... This is another thing, actually, that Mike Prada has talked about with regarding Anthony Davis, like a portable rim protector, right? A guy who can switch out on the perimeter, but who can also really protect the rim and can serve both functions. Like that is the idealized version of Jaron Jackson, but we just haven't seen that yet. Yeah. And so they've wound up essentially like playing him a ton of minutes next to like a lane clogging center, primarily Jonas Valanciunas, because that has been what's made their defense and their rebounding work. But that is also limited, like what Jaron Jackson can do as an offensive player. Like he has actually like a pretty solid post game. And I think he has the tools to be a really good screen and dive guy. But we haven't gotten to see him explore that skill set because he's playing next to a traditional center, which has relegated him to not relegated, like it's played into his strengths, but he's had to spend most of his time moving around, yeah. spotting up, like catching and shooting on the perimeter rather than doing what you would expect a big man typically to do as part of your offense. Yeah. And I mean, if Steven Adams is going to be on the floor, he's even more of a traditional center than Jonas Valanciunas. So uh, the, I think 
the fully actualized version of the Grizzlies offense, but also the fully actualized realized uh, version of Jaron Jackson would have him as a center in Memphis. And, and yeah, hopefully we get to see it this year and hopefully he thrives in that role. Yeah. And I did wonder like, if, you know, if them trading JV was in part a move designed to get them to more Jaron at the five lineups. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that plays out this year. Let's talk about Tobias Harris. Let's. He had a pretty remarkable season last year, right? Like he kind of emerged as the Sixers primary crunch time ball handler. And in the regular season, acquitted himself very well in that role. Like this was one of the best clutch offenses in the NBA. And Harris was a huge reason why. Like his jump shooting was off the charts. Yeah. I mean, he, he was at 55% from two point range. 39% from three, 89% from the line. Uh, he was a lot more decisive when it came to attacking off of the catch. He was in the 73rd percentile in scoring efficiency as a pick and roll ball handler. So he had a really good year. But, the, you know, the limitations for him kind of remained limitations. You know, one of those is that he's just not really a playmaker. And the other, I think, is that he still just takes too many mid-range jumpers like 3.4 three-point attempts per game for someone who shoots it as well as he does just isn't nearly enough. And I I think, you know, maybe the the big roadblock there is that he doesn't shoot threes very well off the bounce. Um, He was only at 30% last year on one pull-up three attempt per game. So, like, I guess that limits how many of them he can get up. But, you know, both of those limitations, I think, contributed to him seeing a big downturn in his production in the playoffs yet again, which became a real problem when Simmons disappeared and the Sixers needed him to step up. And they'll really need him to do that this year for as long as Simmons is holding out and no replacement arrives via trade. Like Simmons has now literally disappeared from the roster. And so Harris is going to be asked to carry that level of offensive responsibility from the jump. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's a big open question. Like, is he capable of making meaningful strides in those problem areas? Yeah, the, the strides he made last season, the, the season he had was remarkable. And the decisiveness, which you mentioned, is what um, stood out to me the most and was a big reason why I, I, you know, I was a believer of his going into the playoffs last year as a guy that was, you know, one of those players that was going to slay some playoff demons once the postseason arrived, because I was really encouraged by that decisiveness he showed during the regular season. And I thought he was, he was really, really, he was great against the Wizards in that first round. If you recall, I think he averaged like 25 a game on really good efficiency. He basically maintained that decisiveness into that first round. And then, you know, and, and obviously this is not just the Tobias Harris thing. This is very much a Sixers thing. It was a Ben Simmons thing, but very much so the, like, as this team has been the last few years, other than when Jimmy Butler was there for that one playoff run, like adversity hit in the playoffs. And I guess you'd say maybe other than Joel Embiid, although even him a little bit, like everyone just kind of seemed to tense up, started to revert to some old habits. Tobias Harris, instead of being this like decisive guy, who was like making decisions off the catch and being forceful when he had an advantage on the offensive end that, for you know, a player with his skill set should result in at very least like a good look. He went from taking advantage of those advantages 
to kind of being the guy again that would catch it, look around, maybe just that like half second of hesitation. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is something here. And it's like, ah, no, wait a minute. Uh, now the Sixers are like scrambling. Here's a turnover, you know, like, and it, it got to the point where it's like, okay, well now we've seen this from him, you know, multiple times in the playoffs. And you just kind of get to the point where you wonder, and I know you don't, you don't want to get into like athletes heads and I get that. And like, we don't know, maybe he completely flips the script this year, but it, there does become a point where like a pattern emerges where you do start to wonder, like, does this guy maybe just not, not that he like doesn't have it, but maybe that's just not. And, and to your point, maybe it is that he, you know, he should be in like a tertiary role in the postseason, And maybe that's all it is. And if they finally figure out that balance and bring someone in who can be the, like a real secondary shot creator with Joel Embiid, then Harris will fill his role uh, admirably. But it is frustrating to watch, you know, even as casual observers or like, um, objective observers that we are. And I can only imagine how frustrating it must be for Sixers fans, people in the Sixers organization, Joel Embiid, you know, to watch a guy like Tobias Harris, who very capably gets it done in the regular season, even in that series against Washington, even when he was more of a secondary guy. It's not like he was the third banana in those situations. And then, yeah, you know, that series against Atlanta comes, adversity hits, and very much kind of reverts to that guy that frustrated people before. And and so, yeah, I mean, I obviously agree that he's, got huge swing potential this season. Um, but I do wonder if at some point, like as, as this pattern has emerged now for a few years, like at what point is it kind of almost silly of us to expect anything different? And I guess my question for you would be if for whatever reason, whether it's a bad move, the Sixers make it with the Simmons thing, if for some godforsaken reason, it does, does not resolve itself all year. Would you have faith in Tobias Harris competently filling the secondary role on this team in the playoffs when the going gets tough because my answer right now would be no I think it would have to be no just because we haven't seen it happen yet and we have seen him approach that level in the regular season but the kind of limitations that I mentioned are going to continue to live in my mind until I see otherwise and I think I said after the Sixers got eliminated last year like in that game seven there was nobody on the floor who was going to do anything offensively, you know, aside from like the odd dribble handoff for Seth Curry. Nobody other than Joel Embiid was doing anything on offense. Nobody looked like they wanted any part of it. So, yeah, until I see any different, I, I think I would have to be skeptical of that. And like, I think the weirdest part about that was like, it wasn't even just Tobias Harris looking indecisive or like shooting the ball poorly or being tentative when it came to shooting the ball he missed like three or four point blank layups in that game seven. It was just weird. So you're right in that. Like, I don't want to delve into like players mentalities because I have no idea and I'm not going to chalk it up to anything psychological for now. I'm just going to say he should be a tertiary offensive piece. He shouldn't be like your most reliable pick and roll ball handler late in a playoff game. And for the Sixers sake, I hope that come playoff time, he is not, but that, you know, even, even in that role, even in that tertiary role, I think he does have big swing potential because we'd frankly never seen him play the type of basketball that he played last season. And so it's still in some ways an open question whether he can even do that again. But if he can, and he is in in his idealized role, then to me, the Sixers are going to be right there. Like that is a team that is going to be capable of winning the East. So I think he's going to have a lot to say about that one way or another. Um, all right, so we've hit on four players so far. We got four left to go. Uh, why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll do the rest. 
What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash. Four swing players left. Where are we going next? Uh, it's a guy you mentioned, actually, in your little intro uh, monologue there and, and a guy that we spoke about on this episode last year the swing player guys and it was michael porter jr yeah and the only the only player to reappear yeah. on this list uh, and i think for good reason yes this season. absolutely um i think you know last year we talked about him obviously as a swing player and, and someone that was very important to the outcome of the nugget season and the season overall but i think this year it's a very different It's a different reason. Like last year, we were also kind of looking at him as a breakout candidate after the bubble playoffs he had. And we're talking about it like, okay, if Michael Porter Jr. can reach his potential and be that kind of third guy with Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray, shore up some of his weaknesses, especially on the defensive end, he could give the Nuggets like a legit title contending big three going forward. If if all those three guys kind of become who they should be, well, Jokic obviously already is. But this year it's different because Jamal Murray's out for a what we can expect to be a good chunk of the season. I don't know if it's been confirmed that he would even be back for sure towards the end of this season. I'm just expecting him to miss the whole season. Right. Like, and, I think if he comes back at any point, that's gravy for right. Denver. And so that's what I'm saying. So it's like this year is very different because, you know, I think the Nuggets showed last year after Murray went down that they are still very capable of, you know, at the very least competing you know, maybe winning a series like Jokic is an MVP caliber player. Obviously, he's literally the MVP. So I don't want to write the Nuggets off. But in order to not write the Nuggets off, whereas last year it's like, all right, can he just, you know, be the third guy and shore up some weaknesses? This year it's like, if we don't want to write the Nuggets off, Michael Porter Jr. has to be a night-to-night consistent, lights-out number two guy on the offensive end. He, you know, he, he does not have to become a good defensive player, but he needs to, yes, Shore up weaknesses is now like the understatement of the year for this guy. Like he needs to be not a sieve defensively, which I do think he made some strides. I just don't think it's consistent enough um, given how much they're going to rely on him now. And so, yeah, like I talk about swing factors to me, it's like with how good Nikola Jokic is with, you know, the way Aaron Gordon very much completes the picture for them, you know, forget about his offensive limitations, but there's a reason why, I thought last year when they made the move for Gordon, they became as legitimate a championship contender as one could be before Murray got hurt. I I think Porter being that 100% consistent number two all-star type scorer on a night-to-night basis who does not give it all back on the defensive end is, you know, a very huge storyline in the West this season because I think if he... If he checks the right boxes for Denver this year, even with Murray out the whole year, I still think they could be a fringe contender because I believe in Jokic and that team that much um, and even the acquisition of Gordon stuff. But if he's not, if he is inconsistent, if he just kind of can't handle that load, if you know the defense takes a step back because his offensive burden is now going to be higher, like if any of those things kind of derail him, they'll also derail the Nuggets. And then the Nuggets could... Like my faith in Jokic makes me think they'll still be more than just a play-in team, but 
there is a path there where like depending on how things go with the Warriors and Clay and a couple other teams where if Porter really can't fill the shoes they need him to fill, it's it's going to be a massive detriment to them. And whether they're a playoffs proper team or a play-in team, I don't know at that point, but they're definitely not contending for a title if he doesn't fill those shoes. Yeah, so here's where I'm at with Porter. You know, for, first of all, obviously with Murray out, they're going to need him to do more with the ball in his hands. We've seen he can work the two-man game with Jokic very effectively. But to this point, that has primarily involved him coming off of DHOs, you know, cutting, relocating off of the ball. And he, he is an incredible movement shooter, uh, an incredible off-ball player in general, who is a wonderful complement to Jokic for all those reasons. But if the Nuggets want to keep that offense humming, you know, if they want to stay in the hunt while Murray recovers... They need MPJ to be running more pick and roll, creating more for others, probably taking more than one and a half pull-up threes a game. Like, uh, he finished 40 total possessions last year during the regular season as a pick and roll ball handler. Like, that's possessions in which he ran a pick and roll and finished the possession with a shot. 40 times he did that in the regular season. Six times in the playoffs. So... That volume needs to come way up. And I think he is capable of doing that, but we just need to see him getting more reps, you know, expanding his off the dribble craft uh, and just getting used to doing it more often. And there might be some hiccups along the way, but I think they have to be willing to live with those because they need to get him to a point where he can do that capably, confidently, and with more frequency than he's done it in the past. To your point about the defense, I I do think he made strides last year. I think a lot was made of him just like getting to a point where he was relatively alert with his help side rotations. And I honestly think there was maybe a bit too much excitement about the strides that he made because like playoffs come around and both the Blazers and the Suns were targeting him relentlessly with the Blazers. It was double ball screens. They're putting him in the first one. And like, because most teams, when you run a double ball screen, are going to switch the first one. That means, you know, whether Jokic was hedging or dropping on the second one, it was MPJ who was sort of giving pursuit off of the first screen. And because screen navigation has been a big weakness for him, he was really ineffective at doing that. And that was leaving Jokic on an island time after time after time. In the Sun series, it was a little bit different. They were running actions in which he was guarding the weak side corner which meant that he was the guy who had to tag or like make that backline rotation. And that proved a big challenge for him as well. He was constantly getting caught like between two guys, not knowing whether to commit or not, either over committing and leaving a guy wide open for three or committing too late and giving up a dunk on the roll. So in both of those areas, I think he was exploited defensively. And that just absolutely needs to improve in order for the Nuggets to really have a chance to contend this coming season. So definitely like he has the tools, man. We've seen, we've seen him make plays as a defender, even if like the awareness isn't all the way there, even if he's still a bit upright and can't navigate screens all that well because of his size and because of his athleticism, his ability to get off the ground and just move at his size, like he has the tools to be at least a neutral, maybe even a positive defender. Yeah. And like I said too, like it, you know, 
it's one thing to expect that defensive improvement of him in general, but now he's also going to have this greater offensive burden, you know, and, and even just being more of a pick and roll ball handler, as you mentioned, like that stuff does add up for younger players. And we've seen better defenders, young defenders struggle as the offensive burden increases early in their yep. careers, let alone for a guy who already has a reputation as an inattentive defender or, you know, so it's a big question mark and a big swing factor for the Nuggets and in the bigger picture in the West. Yeah, because if he continues to be that guy where it's like an opponent can sort of just game plan to pick on him. They're toast. It's it's just going to be really hard for Denver to get where they're trying to go, even once Murray does come back. So we got to see some strides from him in that area, I think. Uh, I have Chris Stapp's Porzingis here. And where I'm at with Dallas is going into the season, like if you ask me right now, I don't consider them a title contender. I, I don't think that they did what they needed to do or like address the issues. I felt like they needed to address this offseason in order to nudge them into that conversation. I have a ton of faith in Luca as an individual talent, maybe the single biggest floor raiser in the NBA right now. His, co- his coach, his new head coach might be one of the biggest uh, floor lowerers <laughs> in the league. I've, yeah. I'm not going to get into talking about that on this episode, maybe not on any episode, but Porzingis is interesting to me because he was really good defensively two seasons ago. And that just wasn't the case at all last year. I'm not entirely sure why, but he looked stiffer. He wasn't moving as well. He wasn't protecting the rim nearly as well. His defensive field goal percentage at the rim in 2019-20, 51.6%. That's an elite mark. Last year, 61.9%. It shot up 10%. And so a big way in which this is kind of affecting Dallas is like a couple of years ago, their best lineups were with Porzingis at the five, you know, lone big man on the floor. They're going five out and the defense isn't really being compromised at all. So you look two years ago with him at the five, the Mavs had a plus 15.1 net rating, an exceptional 106 defensive rating and a 76% defensive rebound rate. Last season with Porzingis at the five, minus 3.5 net rating, 118 defensive rating, and a 71.5% defensive rebound rate, which would be equivalent to the third worst mark in the league. And so I think the defensive drop-off and a very rough first-round series on both sides of the ball against the Clippers obscured what was quietly his best offensive season. He shot almost 38% on six three-point attempts per game, but he was also 54% from two-point range, which was by far the best mark of his career. 58% true shooting, also by far the best mark of his career. Nearly a point per possession on post-ups. 59 percentile, which you know is not blowing anybody away, but still the best mark of his career. He, he's clearly like the, you know, the second most important player on this Mavs team. And if he can marry his offensive production from last season with his defensive performance from the season prior, then I think we could be talking about Dallas as a team with legitimate title aspirations. But I need to see that before I believe that it's actually going to be the case. Yeah, I don't know why. I thought we had Porzingis on last year's list too. 
And maybe it was just because in my mind, he was one of the bigger swing players going into the season. And it's basically like for all of the, the reasons you already mentioned there, it's not even just about going back to the Knicks years. It's very much, there's evidence in the last couple of years, as you detailed, where like, there is still, there's a very, very, very good and unique NBA player in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And he's still young enough that he can discover it and and be that guy for a long time. And if he's that guy, and he's like he, the guy that Dallas traded for to be Luca's number two, even if he doesn't hit all the ceilings maybe that Dallas had envisioned for him when they made that deal, if he is just the best version of who he can be now, because of how good Luca is and how much he does raise a team's floor, like, yeah, Dallas can get into title contention this year. I mean, as presently constructed, even though I don't like what they've done or like how they've complimented Luca, he's good enough that he can almost drag them to fringe contention, as we've seen in just some of the ways that they've pushed the Clippers in the last couple of years in the playoffs. Like, he's that good. I, I don't have faith that Porzingis is going to put it all together this year, but I do agree that if we're talking about you know, like a range of outcomes and and a guy who could affect uh, the season in a certain way because of those range of outcomes. Like Porzingis fits the bill almost as well as anybody because if he can be that guy, like that that supporting cast member that Luca so desperately needs, then like Dallas to me is a no brainer as a fringe contender just because of Luca. But yeah, like I said, I just I I just don't have faith because I've been I've been higher on Porzingis than most people the last couple of years. And, you know, if you remember even that stretch a couple of years ago when Luca went out or any of those games like Luca missed and Porzingis just like turned into a beast, he was putting up like 35 and 10 mm-hmm. and dragging them to wins and competing and be like, all right, he's still there. Like this guy still exists. But for whatever reason, he just can't seem to do it or find his footing when they're not like force feeding him the ball. So, I don't know. Yeah. And like, here's another stat that I think really illustrates how important he is to the team and to Luca, you know, and just the Mavs offense as a whole. So. In that Clippers series, which I think felt disastrous for him, right? Like he was scapegoated. I think Mavs fans were like ready to put him on the next flight to wherever, the moon, basically. He had a 16.5% usage rate in that series, which is like, that's role player shit. Yeah. You know, like that is not, that is not max player, your co-star to Luca in you know, a playoff series where you're trying to get over the hump, you know, like he was spending the majority of that series spotting up and just serving as like a floor spacing decoy in a lot of cases. So individually, not a good series for him at either end of the floor. But even still, Dallas scored 18.7 more points per 100 possessions with him on the floor than with him on the bench. Wow. You know, you can look at, like, one of the reasons that happened is the Clippers very often had Kawhi guarding him so they could switch Doncic, Porzingis, pick and rolls. And, like, the Mavs' response was to just let Porzingis hang out on the perimeter. And they didn't run the Doncic, Porzingis, pick and rolls. They just kind of took Kawhi away from the central actions and had Luka run pick and roll with, like, other screeners and basically avoid the best defender on the floor. And because Porzingis does have that kind of gravity and that threat level as a shooter, he can make that level of an impact even without being involved at all in the offense. And, you know, I think the big thing for him, and and he did start to take some strides in this area during the regular season last year, is like, what else can you do? What, you know, if we saw like some progression in the post game, if that becomes more reliable, 
are you actually deterring teams from sticking wing size players on you? Are you deterring teams from switching those pick and rolls so that it no longer, it no longer becomes like a viable game plan to just play you with a wing and like have a switchable defense where they're not worried about what you're doing on the back end of those switches. That's where like, and that's it's long been the case. Like, he can still be valuable just as a decoy, assuming that he's actually like protecting the rim the way that he's shown capable of in the past. But what would really, I think, raise Dallas' ceiling is if like he is defending at that level and he's also adding like more in between to his game where the defense actually has to think twice about sticking smalls on him and switching and just kind of assuming that he's not going to burn them, whether it's in the post or in, you know, on the interior and the offensive glass, like, they are not worried about that right now. And I think he needs to make them worried about that in order for Dallas to be like a real, real title threat. 100%. Who you got next? All right. Last one I'm going to uh, bring in here is, and this one's a little maybe off the board. It's D'Angelo Russell. And okay. it's for reasons that are a little different than some of the other players we're talking about. It's not so much of like, can he be this guy? And if he hits this ceiling for himself, the Wolves are this, it's, because I genuinely think he's going to have a very large role to play in this season as a whole. And I'll explain how uh, I think he fits that bill and fits this conversation. Basically, like I'm not the biggest D'Angelo Russell believer. And it's not so much about how I think he's going to improve this year. But like on the most basic level, if the Timberwolves can just finally stay healthy for as many defensive concerns as I've always had, as many of us do with a Towns-Russell uh, duo say what you will about all that. Like the Wolves have actually posted a winning record in the few games that Towns and Russell have shared the court together. And that actually continued with some really interesting stuff happening, especially on the offensive end and some really positive indicators when those two were joined then with Anthony Edwards last year, particularly under Chris Finch once he took over. So just from that perspective, if they stay completely healthy after being very down on the Wolves last year, like I was, I don't know if you remember this, but going into last year, I actually picked them to finish behind the Thunder in the standings. Like even though the Thunder were blatantly tanking, like I was that down on the Wolves this last year. I'm actually more of a believer in them this year, at least as a team that could, if they stay healthy and Russell just is who he is, I think they can be a potential play, at least fight to get into the play. Like I, I do have that faith in this roster. Now, Having said all that, that's not necessarily the reason I'm putting Russell in this mix. It's because I think we agree on this. You know, we talked about it on a previous episode. I did a, an unfiltered episode uh, on this on the Scores YouTube page, but I actually think Minnesota is one of, if not the most sensible landing spot and solution to this ridiculous Ben Simmons saga. And if Ben Simmons ends up in Minnesota, it would almost surely, almost surely include D'Angelo Russell going back to Philly. You know, maybe Malik Beasley would be involved and there'd be picks, but I don't think Anthony Edwards would be involved. D'Angelo Russell is pretty much going to be like the cornerstone of the, the package going the other way, other than the, you know, picks and, and young players and stuff. And so if you're looking at it from that perspective, which to me is not that far-fetched, then we're talking about D'Angelo Russell either being like a very key component in a team that's kind of gone nowhere for a long time, being a play-in team or not, or contending for a play-in spot or not, or D'Angelo Russell going to a team that is very much in like contend or bust, maybe win a championship or bust mode for the next few years while they're trying to keep Joel Embiid happy. And, you know, for as long as Joel Embiid's prime lasts. And I actually think, you know, for as much as I said, I'm not the biggest D'Angelo Russell fan. 
if you look at what he does well, like his off the dribble creation, his playmaking would actually really, really benefit the Sixers who need that stuff. As we just had that conversation about Tobias Harris and everything. And his defense, while obviously awful, would be a lot better masked playing in front of Joel Embiid. And so I actually think a move to Philly could be really good for D'Angelo Russell. And it would also, you know, we're at the point where it's like, if you're sitting there listening to this thinking, well, no, like the Sixers are just going to get D'Angelo Russell in, in this potential trade package. Like it's like, please understand the Sixers are very much running out of options here. Okay. This is like, if you're sitting there disappointed because you're hearing this and thinking like, no, there's no way like the Sixers are going to get a much more like alpha type star for Ben Simmons. No, they're not, not unless the situation drastically changes. And so guys of D'Angelo Russell's ilk might actually be the type of players they're now looking at, you know, in, into acquiring. And so, yeah, for, for all of those reasons, uh, I think he can help swing the Timberwolves season, obviously on a much lower level than, you know, some of the potential contenders we're talking about. But I do think he, his presence can help swing the, the Wolves season and they need a good season very badly. And if it's not there, I think it'll be in Philadelphia where he can be helping swing the season of a team that very much believes they can win a title this year, whether we agree with it or not. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't agree with it. Yeah, uh, no, neither I, would I. I would honestly say... And, and- I know we brought up Minnesota as a potential Simmons destination in the past. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility necessarily that that happens, but I think I'm also on record as saying I would not love that return for Philly. And that, I mean, yeah, it doesn't change the fact that he could be a swing piece. He, he could wind up swinging like the next half decade in Philly in, uh, in I mean, wrong. if that's, if that's the return for Simmons, like I would say probably a negative direction. Like, I don't think if that's the primary return they get for Simmons, I don't think they're really in the title conversation for <laughs> pending, I guess, like a, another step somehow from Embiid or like another step forward from Tobias Harris or like a huge leap forward for Tyrese Maxey. I think that might close their championship window. Like I, and you know that I'm a, I'm a Russell pessimist. So I'm coming at this from uh an already slanted perspective, I suppose, where I just like don't really believe in him as a as a star. Like I think he can Nor be do fine I. in in a situation where, like you know, in Brooklyn uh, a couple years back, where he's a number one option for like a five hundred team. And I honestly think, like, I am interested to see what the Wolves look like with him this year. Like, Cat wanted him in Minnesota; they wanted to play together, and I would love it if they actually gelled. And you mentioned like when him and Edwards and Cat were playing there after Finch took over, the Wolves were like a 500 team. So can they be a 500 team over the course of a full season? Like can those guys all stay healthy and find a chemistry together to the point that like the Wolves actually are in the play-in mix? I would really like to see it. Like that team needs something good to happen. And even if that thing is like one and done in the play-in, it's a start. There has been nothing to get excited about there, save for that Jimmy Butler season in which like a Jimmy Butler injury, frankly, tanked their year. Like they were third in the West and they wound up eighth and getting bounced by the Rockets in the first round. And then by the next season, Jimmy Butler was blowing everything up like it was that brief. So if it feels like they're moving towards something, if Russell shows that, like, I think he's actually an underrated off ball player. And I think that can work really well alongside Cat, who, you know, is maybe not quite on Jokic's level as a ball in hand big man. Like 
man, he can run inverted pick and roll. He can handle the rock. He can shoot off of the dribble. Like you can run some interesting stuff with him and Russell. And I'm more interested in that side of things for now than I am in the trade side of things, just because I don't think that ultimately Philly is going to cave and make that the deal that they choose. Um, All right. So we've got one left and I think that this is another interesting one just because as a player who you wouldn't necessarily think of him as being a swing player, because I feel like for most people, if you ask them, they would probably say like he is who he is at this point. It's CJ McCollum. And I I guess I'm going to maybe push back a little bit on the assumption that he is who he is. And maybe I'm just drinking a little bit too much of the Kool-Aid from the the first 13 games of last year where he looked amazing, where he looked amazing. And look, any Raptors fan who is listening to this podcast will know how far astray one can be led by a 13 game sample. Oh God, man. I I just shuddered. Come on, man. I got PTSD. You're just, come on, man. But man, (sighs) CJ McCollum at the start of last season, I, he he looked like he was having a mid-career leap. After those first 13 games, he was averaging 26.7 points on 62% true shooting. He was leading the league in pull-up three-point shooting, both volume and accuracy. He had a 5-to-1 assist-to-turnover ratio. He was averaging 3.5 free throw attempts per game, which isn't a lot, but for him is actually like quite a lot given how rarely he's gotten to the line in his career. And he was well on his way to a first all-star berth. Then he broke his foot, missed 25 games. And when he came back, he just wasn't the same guy. After the injury, he was back to being what he's been the past few years. He averaged 21.4 points on 56% true shooting, 2.5 free throw attempts per game. You know, I I guess like it seemed like a bit of the magic had faded and then he had a pretty disappointing first round series against Denver and for the fourth, fifth, however many years in a row, it's like he goes into the offseason with trade rumblings, burbling, you know, like do the Blazers need to break up the Lillard McCollum backcourt? What could they get for CJ? Like, and, and I understand all that. I understand why his name is in those conversations. Like if the Blazers are ever going to make a move to like dramatically reshuffle their roster without trading Dame, it's got to be McCollum who goes because he's the guy who's actually potentially going to bring back something really valuable. But I also want to point out the Blazers were plus 6.2 per hundred possessions with him on the floor last season. And that's really, really good. He did change his style of play. Like his three-point attempt rate was 47.5%. So he was taking almost half of his shots from beyond the arc, which was by far the highest rate of his career. And that really helped lead to that bump in his efficiency because he was basically taking like all these mid-range jumpers, which he was already really good at, and just moving them like a few feet back behind the arc. And suddenly like he went from being a middling efficiency player to a really high efficiency scorer. And I think his playmaking... Every year, it just gets a little bit better. And he got to the point last year where it wasn't just reactive playmaking. There was more proactive stuff where he was manipulating the defense, making live dribble skip passes with either hand, hitting the weak side corner You know, while that defender was just starting to pinch into the middle to tag. I think that there are a lot of positive developments that he can keep building on. One of the most important parts of this to me is like, 
the Blazers are probably going to heavily stagger McCollum and Dame's minutes because Anthony Simons to this point has not proven capable of being a full-time backup point guard for a serious team. So CJ is really going to have to buoy a lot of their transitional lineups, which was a problem for them last year. Like when they went to their bench, it got messy, but I think they've shored up the defense off the bench. I think they have, they've shored up the defense in general, but I just think like they're better built than they've been in the last couple of years. And so it's, it's actually very similar to how I feel about Dallas, where like, if you ask me now, I don't consider Portland a title contender, but I do think that, I do think if they get the best version of their second best player, where the skills and the change in shot profile that he demonstrated before he broke his foot, like if those things are all still there, then I really do think like the ceiling for this Blazers team could be pretty high. I don't disagree. I actually think they had a sneaky good offseason. Love the Larry Nance pickup. Um, but I guess with McCollum, for me, it's like very similar to kind of what we were talking about with Tobias Harris, where it's like, okay, he, you know, he had that stretch to open last season, but I, I just don't have faith that he is actually a different player than the player we've known him to be for however long he's been in the league now. And, but the one thing I would say though, and why I actually really, really like him as a swing guy is because, you know, again, if you're talking about that, like range of outcomes, if McCollum is the guy that he was and, and, you know, showing the maybe more all around offensive game that he showed in that first month of last season and the Blazers are healthier this year and and they actually do hit that high end of their ceiling. Whereas you're saying, and I agree with you, I think they can get into that fringe contention picture. And then you're talking about a situation where all of a sudden maybe Dame's happy again, you know? And so like, you're talking about a swing of not just this season, but potentially long-term in Portland, as opposed to McCollum is not that guy. The Blazers are very much just the usual kind of like hovering around 500. Maybe they make the plane. I don't know. And in that situation, I don't think Dame is happy. And then I think people remember, oh yeah, this guy wanted reportedly wanted out just like two months ago and he would probably make that known again you know if if that's the way the season goes which McCollum's performance will have a lot to say about so I, I while I don't have faith that he's going to check the right box of this situation for Portland I do really like him as a swing player pick because I think for him and for Portland the swing is not at all just like contained in this season yeah and I think, you know, maybe to your point about Russell, if McCollum shows out in the early part of the season, maybe then Philly looks at him and thinks, yeah. you know what, this might be the best we can do. Maybe we just do the Simmons for McCollum swap straight up. And I think that actually balances the Blazers roster in a really interesting way and could make them very, very intriguing. So, okay. so there you have it. Those are our eight swing players for the 2021-22 season. And honestly, if you have some that you feel like we missed, honestly, feel free to reach out and let us know who we overlooked because um, I'd be really interested to hear like who our listeners feel like are the players that have a chance to really swing the upcoming season. But that is where we landed, the eight players that we chose. And like I mentioned off the top, we are going to have this piece come out in written form sometime next week along with some other season preview stuff that we've got in the works. But uh, for now, I'm going to kick it over to Cash to give us a fan shout out. Yeah, I've got a couple. 
to get to because we've actually got like four backed up. So, oh uh, baby. So uh, the first one uh, from a few weeks ago, actually, Brett Benton, who hit me up on email and said that he's actually been following our show since the bubble playoffs. So I guess you'd say like a relatively newer listener, like midway through. Um, tr- uh, truly enjoy the mix of thoughtful and playful banter you and Wolf on bring. Uh, he did make one joke that he had a bone to pick with us. Not really, but he said at one point last year, I think it was Uolfon that said something about how no team in the league has ever regretted trading for Chris Paul. And uh, Brett just wanted to point out that no team in the league has ever regretted successfully trading for Chris Paul. And he just said, as a Lakers fan, uh, there were a lot of regrets related to the unsuccessful trade for Chris Paul and knowing how much we and myself especially love to um, uh, talk clowns. He said... Uh, my beloved Lakers will tell you that, frankly, trading for Chris Paul and having to trade voided for basketball reasons, alienating a couple of your stars, and then having said Chris Paul go to your crosstown rival, say he'd rather play there, and proceed to temporarily remove that franchise's size 18 red shoes and bold nose while your franchise temporarily puts on your own curly red hair wig and water spraying flower on your lapel probably adds up to regret. I'd, I'd welcome a public retraction or just a fan shout out even more so. Thanks so much for your otherwise sterling work. And I can say with no disrespect to any of the previous fan shout outs we have had in the past, Brent came through with as great a reason for a fan shout out as I can imagine. Stellar email. And uh, the only thing I'll say is we're not going to cry tears uh, for you as a Lakers fan because you had to go through the excruciating what? 10 year drought that you guys went through. So um, that's the only thing I'll take issue with. But other than that, thanks so much, Brent, for uh, being a loyal listener and also for the hilarious email. The other one I want to get to is Jonathan Salorni, who hit me up on Instagram, who uh, he wanted to say that he was very excited for season five of Pound the Rock, thought the first couple episodes of the new seasons have been great. He's been a listener since February 2020, just before the pandemic hit. Loves what Wolf on and I do and hope for more. So that's two great shout outs. Uh, to Brent and Jonathan this week. Like I said, I've got a couple more in the chamber, but we are always looking for that uh, fan love and interaction. So as usual, the usual call out, if you are a listener of the show, whether you are tuning in for the first time or you've been here for all 199, hit us up on social media, at Joseph Cacharo on Twitter, at Joey underscore W on Twitter for Wolfon. Uh, You can find me at Joe underscore 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 cash on Instagram. And you can hit us up on email, joseph.cacharo at the score.com, joe.wolfon at the score.com. And let us know uh, where you're listening from, how long you've been a fan, funny feedback, whatever you've got. Call us clowns and fugazis for all we care. But we would love to hear from you. And as always, we'll then reward you with a shout out on a future episode. And that's it for me for this week. Amazing. Thank you. To all our listeners, uh, for listening, for writing in, and we love doing this for you, and we're really excited for episode 200. What would you call it? The Bicentennial, I guess? Yeah, I guess you would. The Bicentennial. The Bicentennial. Uh, that reminds, reminds quickly me. Quickly approaching. Yeah. In uh, in Rocky, their their fight was, uh, I believe, his fight with Apollo Creed was supposed to be taking place in 1976 because it was uh, part of the Bicentennial. Oh. So, yeah. I mean, I guess all we can say is we hope... That our 200th episode brings all the excitement of Balboa Creed. Yeah. But um, the surprise no. for our fans is that episode 200 is actually going to be a vodcast and it's going to be Wolf on and I getting in the ring. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're going to settle our biggest disagreements like men. Yeah. Um, 
no but honestly uh it's even just hearing that email like season five of pound the rock are you kidding me this is our fifth season yeah a lot of um, rocks been pounded but uh we've been here long enough so let's put a bow on episode 199 we'll talk to you all next week for joseph Cacharo, i'm joe wolf on pound the rock Thank you.